Good afternoon. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics, everyone. I'm Jackie Stein, and today I'm here with, as always, Professor David Just. Hello. Liz Bell. Hello. And today we'd like to welcome our guest star, Anne Byrne, who is a PhD student here in our Dyson School of Applied Economics. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So today our topic is choice overload. So when we talk about choice overload, we are thinking about when you go to a store, picture a large grocery chain such as Wegmans, if you are familiar with Wegmans, maybe like Kroger, where you walk in, but Wegmans is even bigger. You walk in and there is a gazillion options for everything. The one near us, you have like three aisles of cheese. Right. Right? right. <laughs> From every country. For in six different places I asked. <laughs> it's true. And, and it's incredible. It's like a museum to food. So that's one major extreme. The other extreme, you have Aldi, where here we have a very small Aldi that's it's more constrained. So when you walk through, it's like going through a, a maze where you're yeah. forced to go through the same, the same pattern. And you can kind of pick out, you know, there's maybe one or two options of one type of product. Mm -hmm. Whereas you go to Wegmans, you got 15 options mm -hmm. plus. This idea of choice overload is that if you offer people too many choices, they start to regret their decisions. They, mm -hmm. they feel it actually undermines their, their happiness with, every, with whatever choice they make because they feel mm -hmm. like, I got the wrong one. Right. I, there's no way I got the one that was best for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think that imp impacts people's choice between Wegmans and Aldi's in town? I I think that choice overload it first definitely impacts the time you spend in a grocery store. <laughs> I yeah. notice a considerable difference depending where I go shopping, but there are trade-offs. You go to Aldi and they don't have what you're looking for at all times. But the other great thing about Aldi is you can the eggs are you know very low cost, sixty nine cents. Um, we go to Wegmans, and yeah, they have a hundred different types of eggs, but they're all around at least two dollars, two fifty plus, maybe more. At a first-order effect, I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you're thinking about these two different stores, suppose Wegmans and Aldi's had the same prices. Mm -hmm. How often would you be going to Aldi's? And, and they were equidistant from my house. Yes. Okay. So. And, and you'd also have to throw in, suppose, you know, Aldi's had fewer choices, but they were the same. Right. Same basic quality and, and you know, whatever. For me, I value my time a lot these days. So... If all I know Aldi has exactly what I need and I can get in and out of there yeah. mm -hmm. a lot quicker, I would much prefer that on a regular basis. However, I would prefer Wegmans on occasions where I wanted to go and try new things and, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and get what I needed for those special occasions. They, I would use them, which manufacturers would love because then I'm, going, I'm, I'm encountering their products in two different settings, but I, I would definitely split up my time between the two. I could see that. I mean, I, 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 I guess for me, I, when it comes to going shopping, I, I almost always go to the Wegmans because they do have a lot of different choices, but I'm shopping for a relatively large household Right. And for 80 to 90 percent of the things on my list, I just go to exactly where it is, put, pull the first thing off the shelf and throw it in my right. cart. Mm -hmm. And then I get to the foreign food section and oh, I spend yeah. a lot of time there yeah, to, you know, finding exactly the items that I want for, yeah. for what I'm making this week. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's a bit of a barrier to entry, too. Like the first time I went to Wegmans, it was so overwhelming. And I, I like walked in, got two things and left because I just couldn't handle it. Yep. But now that I know my way around and I know where the things that I usually buy are, it's not as big of a deal. And the choice overload has kind of mm -hmm. subsided. Whereas with Aldi, the first time I went in, it's perfectly 
approachable. You know, you go in, you go through the little maze, you get everything. There's not that overload. But I do think the overload subsides once you get to know a store. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people might feel that way because every time I go to Wegmans, there's a ton of people in there. It's right. very crowded. <laughs> right. But Wegmans also offers a lot of different services. They have dry clean. They have drop off for your kids mm-hmm. um, while you shop. They have a cafe area with coffee. They have yeah. homemade bread. There's So the, we have some difference in quality offerings, too, you, that you'll definitely get at Wegmans you can't find anywhere else. And I know when my parents visited, that was one place we went. We went to Wegmans, and they we were like kids at a museum. Uh, <laughs> that cheese, uh, yeah. that cheese yeah. section, it's the fun. meat section, they were like, wow, you just get a pork shank for what a, what a great deal. And, oh, oh, it was so great. I think that was one of their favorite parts of Ithaca. So uh, there is that novelty effect of all of these choices that sure. I think we like to celebrate and yes and maybe this is you know partly american culture but like the more the merrier the the more different the more exciting and sometimes it may be cognitively more overloading and difficult to make that final decision but the fact that we can make that decision between all these choices is kind of exciting and and you know oh i'm so thankful that we we actually have choices and for some places you can't i could see that amount of choice is going to have a different impact on me when i'm on my way home from work versus me when my kids are young and I've got to take two of them with me and, right, and right. Uh, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of stressful things going on. So when we talk about choice overload, there was this, this sort of classic experiment that was originally mm-hmm. run. I, I believe people had to choose jams, yes. uh, different types of, of uh, fruit jam, and they were given a whole bunch of different choices. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. 24. 24 choices. Was it the first? Mm-hmm. 24 or 6. 24 or 6, yes, they did it. Two different sides of the store, was it? No, they did it at different times. So at right. one time during the day, they brought had 24 different jams. The other time, they did 6. Do you want to continue? And, and people just felt yeah. a lot better about their choice when they yes. had chosen among the 6 rather mm-hmm. than when they chose right. among the 24, right? Well, the argument for that, right, is that it, maybe there's a smaller opportunity cost. If, you, mm-hmm. if the opportunity cost of that 1 of 6 was the 5 other jams versus 23 other jams, you paid a, you know... Right. Maybe mentally you think you paid a smaller opportunity cost. It's it's a really interesting result and one that other people have been able to, to replicate and verify mm-hmm. in, in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it also seems like it might be something that's fairly specific to the particular context, right? right. Would it make sense for stores knowing this result to say, well, we're never going to have more than six varieties of, of anything, right? Right. I mean, is, is that really what they should yeah. do? That makes sense. A lot of sense because there there were some replications that were unsuccessful with the jams, but the same authors they went in and they tried this with chocolate and they found similar things. People were more likely to buy the chocolates in the experiment when they had less choices and. To determine if it's jam versus chocolate, it is very product dependent because when you, you think about jam and you think about bread, though you put the jam on, well, there's different a lot of different preferences for bread, such as gluten-free, um, multi-grain, sourdough, there's different types and um, with raisins, etc. But with jams, there's, there's certain fruit spreads and you can get preferential, but there aren't as maybe a fine line between yeah. I only eat this kind of bread because 
because this it aligns with my diet and my family, the way I want my family to eat. The basic use for those jams is almost all the same, unless right. you're talking about like right. mint jam, you might right. put on some right. So basically, meat. jams are more substitutable. Yeah, is the idea that too? Yeah, because you could put butter instead, peanut butter. I meant with like other jams. With other jams, yeah. right? They're more of a hom- homogeneous product. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like chocolate bars are though too. Pretty yeah. substitutable, no? Cho- well, just I like mean, little chocolates. something like nuts, in which case some people yeah. totally right. can't eat them. Yeah. But in the context of the experiment, I think that there was, it was more of a homogeneous okay. sense to the product. So, versus... so, this, so in other words, it, it wouldn't be a good idea for a store to go, say, narrow down to just six of a, of a particular item unless, unless it really is sort of meaningless choice at some right. level. Or even worse, to narrow down to fewer items, mm-hmm. um, different categories of items exactly. available, right? Because right. that doesn't seem to be what this experiment implied. Right. And you also think, when you think about jam as a product, it's something that it, it takes a while to consume. So you're not going to be buying more jam every week. Whereas bread, that is something you need to buy every week. It's or commitment. Or, it's commitment. Your jam purchase is a big commitment. Exactly. And, uh, you have it for years, you trust me. <laughs> you always have to about how often you all eat jam now. It's not frequently. Yeah. No, so but it turns you, out. And in fact, you know, this experiment reminds me of I visited the Cornell Orchard Store, and they have some very interesting jam selections there. And they've got savory they have sweet and they all look very very delicious they have onion jam like that would be great for like thanksgiving hosting cracker and cheese yeah oh, there's so many different jams and i remember i was there and and maybe if, if the price was a little lower i just decided not to buy any of them because i was like oh, i want to buy this one i want to buy this one so i had that personal experience but it's not you know maybe scalable to yeah. the united states um it also seems even if you are talking about jams, there's a little bit of a context issue where if you're being offered six exotic yes. gourmet type jams, mm-hmm. you might really want to try each one because it, right. it, they're mm-hmm. really exciting. You go to the store and you're there to buy raspberry jam and mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. nothing else. Mm-hmm. And each raspberry jam there is probably pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there is something interesting happening. So we have small purchases like jam, bread, and we go to the store. We have big purchases where we go online and we're looking at reviews very critically about mm-hmm. the computer, about the car. There's yeah. websites that are trying to mitigate some of that choice overload by pairing cars for you and pairing down your choices, saying yeah. these would yeah. be a good set to look at to start with. I honestly, I think the best example of choice overload is is the Netflix trap of like mm-hmm. turning on Netflix and trying to find something to watch and just Yes. <laughs> rolling through the Netflix options for an hour. We literally replaced like the 500 channels on cable with, you know, 500 choices on Netflix. Yeah, and right. we didn't save anything. No, no. And you were like, and then you just hone in on the same show that you watch over and over. Yeah, because yeah, you just can't even handle the universe that is Netflix. What I do is I actually, when I just can't make a choice, I go and watch previews online and just yeah. say, I watch a just a list of different previews so I get to see the whole yeah, and yeah. They, they give away everything so you get to see many movies yeah. in, short amount, yeah. in the same amount of time as one movie no, and then they ask you like are you still watching this show and it's like yes I'm going to stay in this world because if I stop watching this show then I have to go back to the universe where I have to choose like they, that's how you end up binging and they do have if you look there are articles you find online recommending what to watch on Netflix right. because, right. because people have this problem right. there are flow charts 
flow chart. I'm into That's the flow better. charts. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you like, take it seriously. Yeah. Well, you mean you know you don't know what to watch. You can just look up a flow chart. Yes. So it asks you questions about there. you yes. and you say yes or no and yeah, you, it's great. you end up watching. Yeah. Okay, yeah. very good. Yeah. <laughs> look it up, guys. <laughs> but the that. big purchases you're talking about. Yeah, the big, the big purchases. purchases with cars and I think there's some an effort there that they're trying to mitigate choice overload. A lot of these places, you know, computers especially the wide number of choices popped up because there are specific audiences that really have different needs. Yes. Right. And then there's everybody else who has very generic needs. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that that was one of the beautiful things about like when Apple products really kind of jumped ahead and became so popular, I think part of it was that it was this really streamlined collection of products and there weren't that many. There was like a small computer, a bigger computer, an iPod, mm-hmm. and there weren't really choices and it sort of had this you know they gave this impression of like there's one choice because it's the best one right. and this is it done it's the iphone yeah they come up with it's the, the name iPhone. Only there's one. not 800 different versions of the iphone there's the iphone that's it it's bold it's confident but i think it worked and paid off and it, and it helps them in their cost savings research development yeah. so yeah I mean, it, it took over everything yeah when they, when they came upon that sort of strategy yeah right? Yeah. Well, so you have that strategy, a very successful iPhone, and then you go and look in the grocery store and you say, wow, Oreo did a completely opposite strategy. (laughs) (laughs) They did the other extreme and look how successful they're doing. Has it been successful? Like I've seen all of these weird Oreo flavors and has it been, do we know how successful, like what's the Oreo stock at? understanding is they had been struggling a bit um, and that was probably behind some of this this effort, right? Right. The Oreos were starting to sell a little bit less and less, and what way can we get attention? Well, hey, let's come up with yeah. really crazy flavors and rotate them like every couple months, so right? So watermelon Oreos was not plan A. Probably not. And it's not that, I don't think they're doing horrible. I don't think they're going to disappear or anything, but mm-hmm. it it is a strategy that is designed to try and get everybody's eyeballs at once. Right. And you right. tend not to do that if you're at the, you know, at the top of your game already. Right. And I, exactly, they have the money to spend. And I think another thing that it, advantage it gives them is shelf space. So you go into the mm-hmm. cookie aisle and you just see an Oreo block. And, <laughs> and, and just looking at this brand, looking at the brand, having, it, it enforces recall, it enforces familiarity, and it enforces probably the potential to buy. Mm-hmm. So, and we were I was discussing earlier, you know, Oreo has all of these kooky product, you know, kooky cookie products. <laughs> hard to say. <laughs> There's a tongue twister. So you think, okay, wow, watermelon, that's so gross. I got to try that. And somebody's pumped for some broccoli. Was that <laughs> broccoli? <laughs> they, that, they, that was fake. Like, <laughs> it was fake. It was fake, but you know, maybe they might consider it. <laughs> but it yeah, so it, peeps. Peeps, um, <laughs> there's everything, but it, what does it do? It, it get it gets you thinking about Oreo, and then it it increases your the probability that you'll buy a regular Oreo or double stuffed. I think their <laughs> primary goal with putting mm-hmm. putting Peeps Oreos on the shelf is to get you to buy regular Oreos. There's a, a, a niche group that really likes Peeps that are going to buy these, right? Or people who are adventurous and want to claim I ate these really right. terrible Oreos. But I think their main goal is just to draw attention, get some people writing about them and talking about them, mm-hmm. and and 
then everybody remembers what Oreos taste like and they want the regular ones. Exactly. As, yeah. As a parent, have you noticed, like, have you seen your kids respond to Oreos or how do you think kids respond to some of these weird flavors? Are they... It depends on the age, right? right. I mean, you, you get a kid who's sort of upper elementary school age and they are totally into terrible flavors. Yeah. <laughs> right? This is what they're all about. Right. And, and, and terrible ideas too, right? I mean, these are the people who they were selling green ketchup to a, right. a few years back. So you can hit that target audience. Mm-hmm. And certainly Oreos is trying to target kids. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's who one of their audiences is. And having, I don't want to call them gross flavors, but novelty flavors, right? right? That's, that's going to hit that audience. Mm-hmm. But Peeps, I think they were going for nostalgia, right? Nostalgia is seasonal too, right? And I think there's another thing it really has an impact on here is keeps Oreo relevant over all these years. It still remains Milk's favorite cookie. And (laughs) (laughs) and, and, I mean, hence they're getting free advertising right now. (laughs) But it keeps Oreo relevant because it's so easy to to go with all of these different things in the market, you know, in the grocery store to forget about, you know, your favorite cookie, to forget about the cookie. So we talk about this and they have like all these ridiculous flavors and they also mm-hmm. have the double stuff, mega stuff, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. right? Really, they're only introducing them one at a time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're not they're not overwhelming you with like billions of choices of Oreos right. at any point in time. Mm-hmm. So there were chip companies that were trying out odd flavors, mm-hmm. you know, they would have contests. Contest. They were doing three mm-hmm. at a time. So are they limiting those? I mean, is that, uh, do we see choice overload there? Is that why they're stopping at three or do, is three even by that time too much because we don't buy chips all that often? Was it part of the contest that they wanted to see which one won in the marketplace, which of the three, and then that one would be the one they continue producing? Have they continued any of them, though? Because they've been doing this for years, haven't they? (laughs) We should find out. Yeah, Yeah, we should. There have been some gross ones. My dad actually really likes them. We'll get them to like try, and he's like, "This is delicious." Yeah, cheeseburger one's pretty good. Korean barbecue potato chip the other day that was excellent. You know, Very barbecue. good. Korean I, I, barbecue. Korean uh, barbecue, everything. It was really good. I was at a faculty meeting the other day, and somebody had crab-flavored chips. Yes. And it was absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Those are very <laughs> big in Asia, though. Yeah. They're very big in... Was it Old Bay, or was it crab? It was crab. It was, yeah. it was supposed There's to be... There's, like, shrimp ones. It, it, yeah. was, it was a mid-Atlantic-based company. It was supposed to be Maryland crab-flavored yeah. chips, and it was just I, not very good. I think they should <laughs> stick with, you know, putting the crab on the chips. Yeah, to be honest. Being a Marylander, I I couldn't do it. Do you feel like when a company does that, like they put out all these different flavors, I sort of feel like they're not being confident in their original product a little bit. It's kind of like how Monopoly, I don't know if you guys are familiar with what they just did with the new game pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, They said they were going to get rid of old game pieces and they had everyone vote on which ones to keep. Did Um, everybody vote for the original? I mean, I don't know, but they did Apparently get not. rid of the thimble. <laughs> yeah, yes. they got rid thimble of a bunch of the thimble. Yeah. Not, not the sure. thimble. Not the thimble. <laughs> I I feel like it's because you My know these one. millennials. Who knows what a thimble is? Kids. Oh well. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that just yeah. Right. Personally, be confident in your thimble. on us. Apparently, it went down the rabbit hole. It is it is gone or the memory hole. Right. We we don't know what. We don't know who won. (laughs) Yeah. On the potato chips? Yeah. Southern Biscuits and Gravy won in 2015. Okay. 
with uh, introducing a new product, you can, and the risk of, you know, not being confident in that product, there is some kind of signaling there, but there's also some kind of appeal to different preferences. If somebody else is doing organic, somebody else is doing crunchy peanut butter or GMO free, Maybe you want to get in on that. Maybe you want to expand your product line. But there's also the concern that companies have between cannibalizing their products and stealing market share from other competitors. So that's a tough situation. And there's so much that goes into organizing those shelves. Well, no, I think, you know, to a certain extent, you're right. You don't often see the leader in a, a particular category experimenting around with new flavors. It's Mm -hmm. usually the number two or the number three that's Mm -hmm. experimenting around. Introducing new functional objects, right? I mean, so saying, well, there are some people who can't have gluten, so we're going to introduce a gluten-free version or we're going to, you know, introduce something like that. That's that's a bit different because you're going after a group that couldn't use your product otherwise, yes. right. right? So it's it's clearly a differentiated product. But taking your old product and smashing up peeps into them, that's something that, that signals, no, we're just trying to dr- attract more eyes and get more right. people in. And, and it is it is going to be, you know, the, usually the number two product, which is sort of interesting because Oreo really is pretty much the cookie, right? right. And there's something, too, there's like you, you sell peanut butter, and you get into the almond butter business, how many peanut butter eaters are you now switching to almond butter or cashew butter? That's a hard call to make sometimes. And is it worth it? Is the margin that you're going to make, you know, the and amount you of peanut your brand, right? right. It's, I mean, to a certain extent, Oreos has been able to use this as a way to sort of signal their personality exactly right mm-hmm. and you and you see that with a lot of when you look at some of the fast food restaurants that now and again will come out with outrageous products what mm-hmm. are they doing they're they're trying right. to signal this sort of personality they have right. um, and identify with the consumer they're trying to draw in right. and th- that makes a lot of sense and it's also the products are outrageous so they only leave them in for a little time mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. But I, I think in general, it's got to be something that defines your brand and not something that waters it down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So with that, are there any th- other thoughts that you guys want to How to deal pro- with choice overload or choice overload? So this is interesting. One of the directions I was thinking this, this uh, conversation might take is what is the impact of choice overload? You walk into the Wegmans and you're overloaded with numbers of choices and you do end up becoming a lot more susceptible to nudges mm-hmm. and towards, you know, to the marketing. Mm-hmm. So you start buying more things that are located towards the end caps or that mm-hmm. are, are mm-hmm. at eye level. You, you start uh, buying more things that are suggested to you by the store. Right. It keeps you there longer, which is great for them. Well, it does keep you there longer, <laughs> but it, it, it's... You know, it right. makes it so I don't want to put in the cognitive exactly. effort to think through all these products. Here's the one that it seems like they're suggesting is it's the much, normal one, and I'm going to take it. It's much more effective. Right. It does it does make it very difficult, though, especially with those bigger purchase items or even, like, kind of mid-range purchase items. Like, I was looking at vacuum cleaners, mm-hmm. and this is something where there's just too many options, and I just want a device that will, like, suck <laughs> up stuff on my floor. This is not a complicated thing, but, you know, suddenly I get on Amazon and I get on eBay, and there's so many different options. And I think that it makes it really difficult to sift through the information. And then you just end up kind of arbitrarily choosing or responding to some sort of a nudge. Or looking for consumer feedback. And, and Yeah, yeah. I think it, I did that with actually an umbrella. Purchase. Umbrella. <laughs> Took me forever. Yeah. Wow. And these are not, and not concerned about wind velocity. <laughs> right. And then going. suddenly you're being told it has some feature that you didn't even know was something that you were supposed to be concerned right, about and, and you're and like, just like break while i'm using okay, it okay now i definitely need the thing that has that yeah right. 
I think it helps to know what you're getting before you go. <laughs> I think like yes. I can't go to Wegmans without a list. Mm-hmm. But I think trying to to not beat yourself up about second right. guessing decisions. Exactly. And, and I think um, you can put parameters on your choices when you shop online. You can put I want to spend this much money right. and I want this color. So that's very helpful. And sometimes uh, when I go to a site that doesn't have that, I get very annoyed. They're like, oh, I can't limit this to a. <laughs> now I have to sift through everything. <laughs> So I think the market is responding in a way that they understand that we're overloaded and they're trying to take actions to mitigate that. So maybe they're not actively reading academic literature, but they've realized. I think certainly marketers try and take advantage Mm -hmm. of it. And if they can take advantage of it in ways that reduce the number of choices or or guide us in reasonable ways so that we're not dissatisfied with what we've we've got once they've gotten us there, I I think that that could actually lead to a much better marketplace, right? I think a very clever way that they do that sometimes is offering a, a product that is a little less appealing than the one they want us to buy. It's the economist that does this, they'll, they'll offer a ridiculously priced just paper option mm-hmm. of their journal. Mm-hmm. And a they do a whole framing effect where the combination of getting both is like very, very similar. equal simil- to the paper. E- equal then. to the paper. And you're like, well, I don't know, I just get both. And then you end up paying more than you would have if you just would have bought the online. Smart. So there, there's many different things that you can do that way. Mm-hmm. So in that case, like adding another choice had a marginal like a marginal positive impact on their sales. So getting clever like that, I think is, is it? Yeah. I mean, certainly there are a lot of ways you can, you can nudge a decision that way by adding choices. If you add choices out on the extremes, Mm -hmm. right, right, you start to make those choices in between look a lot more attractive. What does that remind you of, everyone? Coffee? Well, I was going to say politics. But that all hinges on you being able to differentiate. And I think that that was, you know, back to the jam. Like you said, raspberry, blackberry, jam, I don't know if this is that different anymore. And I think that's when the overload is really frustrating when you're just like, what is the difference? I have these yeah. eight different, and there's something that's different, but I'm not sure that it's going to be discernible to me when I get home. And then it's really hard to make a choice. I was actually in Walmart the other day. My brother's radiator had broken and I said I would go buy him a new one. And so I was standing in the aisle with all the radiators and it was this whole aisle. The entire thing was just all different types of radiators. And I was standing there for probably about 10 minutes, just kind of staring at them all, (laughs) totally blanked out, not knowing what to do. And this random man walks by me. He didn't work there and he took a radiator off the shelf and he was like, buy this one. I have it. And then he handed it to me and he walked away and I was like, well, all right then. That's <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it was actually super helpful. Yeah. yeah. People like that. I know. Yeah. And you know what? There are people like that. They're online. There's people who are, are writing about and reviewing. Right, they're huge. But they're huge. You got to be careful too because then you have you know uh, conflict of interest people who yes. maybe or under dis- all the fake people online. The fake people. Yeah. Exactly what I'm saying. To say, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about that. But mm-hmm. even still, if you don't know, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, you never and know. You exactly. can just in your least, mind think that you made the correct decision, which is so re- <laughs> relieving. Yeah, it does remove some of the the pressure. So with that, um, I've got so we've established that. Oh, oh, the first world problem of choice overload. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So terrible. All of our listeners in the developing world are wondering what in the world we're talking about. <laughs> they wish they at least had the iPhone, but I, I will it, say that podcasts is another place where I have choice overload. Oh, me too. <laughs> I was driving. I had a Which long. Which one do I listen? 
Yeah. Hey, yeah listen, I, listen to this one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll let, let us easy. help you with that You're choice. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> just, just make it easy for yourself and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> with that, thank you so much, Anne, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. This is Mad Hat Economics. We are not going to throw advertisements at you, except we're, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to let you know that you can... Uh, follow us on Twitter at Mad Hat Economics, or you feel free to email us with any questions or comments at madhatecon at gmail.com. That's M-A-D-H-A-T-E-C-O-N at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time.